All right, let's turn in our Bibles, shall we, to Luke chapter 16. If you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers who are super busy, bless you guys for that. If you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers will be happy to get one to you. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 26. We're studying the book of Revelation these days, and we've paused just for a few weeks here to talk about and look into a mini-series about what happens when we die. What happens when we die? The purpose of which, connecting it to Revelation, the purpose of this mini-series is to bridge the gap between the end of the world, as we see in the end of Revelation, the end of the world and the end of our lives. That's the purpose of this ministry is to bridge that gap. Like, how do they relate to one another? How are they connected? And how are they not connected? And so on. It's also intended, this mini-series, to ask and answer questions like, is there life after death? And if so, what in the world does it look like? What should we expect Indeed, what, what actually happens when we die? It's a question that's a felt need. It's a question on anybody's mind if they allow themselves to think it in their quieter moments. And in fact, it's forced upon us, I think, when those around us, those close to us die. We begin to ask, what actually happens? And even closer to home, what happens to me when I die? They're all pertinent questions because when you get right down to it, eternity weighs in the balance. Eternity literally weighs in the balance, resulting in heaven for some and hell for others. And rejecting the truth about all of that, rejecting that either or, proposition and expectation and reality or living in denial about death in general doesn't change any of it. Rejecting the truth, living in denial about it doesn't change it one bit. Which is why I started last week with the fact that we're all going to die. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we're all going to breathe our last because of sin, our sin and Adam's sin. It's that serious sin. The good news is the souls of believers go immediately to heaven. The souls of Christ followers, the souls of those who by faith and repentance have been adopted into his family, be his children. The souls of believers go immediately to heaven. No separation and no waiting, which means there's no such thing as soul sleep, some nebulous state of unconscious existence until Christ returns. There's no such thing, biblically speaking, and there's no such thing as purgatory, a supposed place between death and heaven for final punishment and purification. It's not real. It's not real. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not now and not later after we die. None. All of which brings us to the third truth regarding unbelievers. And while the second truth is exceedingly encouraging, and I 
trust, as I said last week and prayed last week, that it fuels and fills your soul and gives you great confidence, great assurance, and great anticipation even for what's to come after your death as a follower of Jesus Christ. The other side of the coin is not as encouraging for unbelievers. In fact, it's downright disturbing. It's downright disturbing what happens when unbelievers die. But that doesn't make it any less true. The discomfort of it doesn't. In fact, it ought to spur us on. It ought to spur us on to repent and believe in the first place. If that's you, if you've never done so, it ought to spur us on to repent and believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And if you already have, it ought to spur us on to share that with others. It ought to increase our burden to that effect in the best sense of that word burden all the more because of the disturbing reality of what happens when unbelievers die. Because while the souls of believers go immediately to heaven upon death, the souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell. That's the third truth, the third answer to this question, what happens? The souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell. Hell, of course, a place of constant conscious torment. I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this because the entire sermon is about hell. It's a place of constant conscious torment, as we'll see, for those who reject Jesus and all that he offers. Those who don't believe the gospel, the good news of salvation, and receive him as Lord and Savior. Upon death, they go immediately to hell. Look at Luke 16, verse 19. Speaking in a parable, most likely, could be a real story. Speaking in a, a parable or a story, Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Just for a, a second, bring that home to today. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, not to be confused with the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. At his feet, at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Miserable existence. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Let's stop there for a second. To Abraham's side, to Abraham's loving care in heaven, literally to Abraham's bosom, indicating and implying such loving care like a, a mother has a, an infant next to her bosom in just the safest place in the entire world. 
protection and provision and love. That's the idea here. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, being in heaven because that's where Abraham is. Indicating that the poor man was a believer as well, just like Abraham. Second part of verse 22, the rich man, meanwhile, also died and was buried. And in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is why we presume that this is a, a parable. By implication, it doesn't seem, as we'll see, that, that this could be a possibility. A sight from hell to heaven and vice versa, dark as it is. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, indicating that the rich man was an unbeliever because he went to hell when he died. Just like everyone else who doesn't believe in Jesus. Like it says in John 3.18. Oh, so often we stop with the most famous verse in the Bible, verse 16. But just two verses later, it says this. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Present tense, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Condemned, you need to understand, condemned as in considered guilty and sentenced to punishment. That's the word condemned there. That's the idea. That's the connotation that it carries. Considered guilty and sentenced to punishment. In this case, the punishment of hell. Or as the Bible calls it elsewhere, a fury of fire and a fearful expectation of judgment. Hebrews 10. Failure to believe in Jesus, failure to follow him and love him leads to condemnation in hell. Oh, hear me on that. If you have yet to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, trusting him to save you and deliver you from such condemnation, hear me. It leads to condemnation in hell. Now, notice that instead of using the word hell in verse 23, Jesus uses the word Hades. Do you see it? Hades. Which leads some people to make a distinction, a distinction between the two. Saying that Hades is a temporary place of suffering where the souls of unbelievers go. While hell is a permanent place of suffering where the bodies of unbelievers go. That, that's what some people say. Making a distinction between Hades and hell. But I don't think that's the best way to understand what the Bible is getting at in its entirety on this issue. Nor does scripture necessarily imply such a distinction. Rather, given the similar descriptions surrounding the use of such terms in the Bible, I think Jesus and the apostles are simply using two words for one place. Two words for one place. In fact, they use several words for one place. I want you to understand this. Several words for one place. Five of them, in fact. Five different words are used for hell in the Bible, it's as if God's trying to get something across to us. Five different words. Hell, Hades, 
Tartarus, bottomless pit, his expression, bottomless pit, and lake of fire. Five different words or five different expressions, all describing different aspects of one place. One place. For instance, Hades and Tartarus are words borrowed from Greek mythology that would have been very familiar to first century listeners in that Greek milieu, in that, that Greek culture. Very familiar to them. And it would have evoked those two terms borrowed from Greek mythology, redeemed in, by use in the scriptures. They would have evoked images of an infernal underworld and a deep abyss. It is not like God in all of Scripture to use culturally familiar things in order to convey present-day realities. This is just another couple of examples. Hades and Tartarus. Meanwhile, the word hell itself evokes powerful images and feelings. Feelings. At least it's supposed to evoke such things in us, though it, it has been so flippantly thrown around as a swear word, we don't think much of anything about it anymore. But God intends for it to evoke such soul-gripping images and feelings that were almost broken by it. Because the word hell translates the Greek word Gehenna. A little background here so that you never hear that word hell the same again. Gehenna is the Greek word that it translates, which comes from the Hebrew word Gehenom. Gehenom. And Gehenom is the name for the valley outside of Jerusalem in ancient times where Old Testament people would sacrifice children in some of the pagan cultures of the day. Before Jerusalem was taken over by the likes of David and so on, and redeemed, made for God's use, in the pagan cultures before that, and sometimes a few after, the pagan cultures would sacrifice children literally in the valley just outside the gates. If that doesn't evoke something in you, you're dead. What's more, by the New Testament era, that very valley was used as a garbage dump where trash was burned. And so it became an ongoing, never-ending, smoldering garbage dump, all of which is meant to evoke images and feelings of sin and of the worst sort and suffering and loathing. Loathing. Who would ever want to go to a rotting garbage dump that is burning with fire where children have been sacrificed? It's something to avoid at all costs. And so is hell. But the implication of the story Jesus tells is that unbelievers go there immediately upon death, that it's unavoidable for unbelievers. Look at the second part of verse 22 again. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, implying that his presence in hell immediately follows his death, just like his burial. Look at it there again. 
The rich man also died and was buried. And it doesn't say, and waiting for Hades or waiting for hell or at some time in the future. It says, he, was, he, was, he died and he was buried and in Hades, being in torment, he, present tense, he lifted up his eyes. There's no gap, there's no pause, and there's no waiting. The souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell upon death. And that immediacy is reinforced by 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The day of judgment referring to the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And the unrighteous there in God's eyes are those who fail to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And God keeps them under punishment, a.k.a. condemnation, from the day they die until judgment day implying, when you combine it with Luke 16, that the souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell. The punishment of hell. What's more, they suffer for all eternity. It doesn't get better. Not in reality and not in this sermon. They suffer for all, the souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell and they suffer for all eternity. As uncomfortable as it is, the Bible is clear. Suffer indicated by words like punishment and torment and anguish and flame and fire. Look at verse 24. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Anguish as in extreme suffering. And Jesus is presumably using physical descriptors here to describe the spiritual and emotional suffering of the rich man's soul. But real nonetheless. Real nonetheless. And the word flame coincides with his verbiage elsewhere, calling hell an eternal fire. A real fire with real suffering. It's real. It's real. Hell is. But Abraham said, verse 25, Abraham said in response to the rich man's plea for mercy, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In other words, you had it coming. That's the, that's the idea. You had it coming. Instead of laying up treasure in heaven, you laid it up for yourself on earth. Instead of believing and following Jesus, you did what you wanted. So there, were, there will be no more mercy. There will be no more mercy. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been Fixed. Fixed. Implying that it's permanent. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, from heaven to hell, may not be able, in their desire to show you mercy, to give you a little bit of relief, if not a lot, they won't be able to do that, and none may cross from there, 
hell to us in their desire to escape the suffering and punishment. In other words, the suffering can't be alleviated and won't be alleviated. It's forever. It's forever. The separation and suffering lasts forever. Unless you think that that's stretching it, that, hey, come on, Pastor Rob, this is just a, a parable. If, if that's what maybe you're thinking right now, because it just violates your sensibilities so much, consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 46. Referring to those who live for themselves as opposed to him, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The punishment and suffering of unbelievers is eternal. It's eternal punishment. It's explicit. The chasm is fixed. And Revelation 14, 11 confirms it that we talked about, I don't know, many moons ago, where an angel in heaven says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's a reference to those who die in the great tribulation apart from Christ. They too will suffer in hell for all eternity. No rest and the constant torment of burning. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It's real, it's forever, and it's terrible. It's terrible. And that's not even the whole of it. The Bible also describes hell as a place of darkness, leading to fear and uncertainty. If you've ever been in pitch darkness with no chance of getting out, fear and uncertainty. It describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, implying great sadness, a tearing of the soul kind of sadness and, and great anger and great frustration, gnashing of teeth. And it's described as a place of unquenchable fire where their worm does not die. In other words, where their degradation and destruction never ends, just like the decay and burning of a garbage dump never ends. Their degradation and destruction never ends. The suffering of hell is forever. Which rules out things like annihilationism. The souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell and suffer for all eternity, which rules out something called annihilationism. Big word. It's simply the belief that the souls and bodies of unbelievers just cease to exist at some point. They just cease to exist. They're just no more. Just snuffed out like a flame of a candle is snuffed out and gone. Annihilationism. After, after some appropriate time of punishment, some people say, the suffering stops. Because, because, come on, nobody deserves to suffer forever. Maybe you've even heard this argument. Nobody deserves to suffer forever. I mean, that's not fair. Nobody commits, you know, 
an infinite number of sins requiring a, an infinite amount of time to pay for them. And, and nobody commits sin of an infinite nature, though that's arguable given the preciousness that God places on life. Genesis chapter 9. But yet some people say that. Nobody commits sin of an infinite nature. And, and even if they did, like, God wouldn't do that. He, he just wouldn't punish people forever. He's loving. He's, he's good. He's merciful. And that's true. At least on the last three, God is loving. God is good. God is merciful. But he's also just and he's also holy. Just and holy, perfectly just and infinitely holy. Which means that every single sin is an infinite offense against God. Infinitely contrary to his perfect holy will. Every sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And his perfect justice requires that an equal and infinite payment be made for those sins. An eternal payment. So annihilationism is not a natural result of God's loving character. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the opposite of God's complete character. Plus, it's contrary to the explicit words of Scripture that we just saw. Words like forever and ever and eternal and does not die. So the point remains. The souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell and suffer for all eternity. What's even worse, I think, is that they suffer, suffer apart from God's presence. The souls of unbelievers go immediately to hell and they suffer apart from God's presence. We not only see it here in Luke 16, but Jesus was adamant about it elsewhere on the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount, vowing to cast unbelievers away from him. Connect the dots. He vowed and promised to cast unbelievers away from them, even those who did religious things in the course of their day, philanthropic things, good things. He said on judgment day, he said, I will say this on judgment day to those people, to unbelievers, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Get away from me. Get away from my presence. He's going to banish them from his presence once and for all on Judgment Day. And in Matthew 25, 41, he connects such banishment to hell, saying, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. How terrible it must be if it's been prepared for Satan and his demonic throng. So hell is a place absent God's presence. 
Hell is a place where God isn't. It's kind of hard to imagine. I mean, can, can you imagine no more common grace in our world right now, today? You know, the, the grace uh, from which, favor from which we get God's presence. Uh, favor like health and happiness and love and, and beauty. It's an act of God's common grace that we still get to experience such awesome things, love and beauty and so on, in a fallen world, racked by sin. It's called common grace. Believers and unbelievers alike are recipients of it. Like, can you imagine a world where none of that exists? Because it only exists due to the omnipresence of God in our world. Remove God from our world and you remove common grace from our world and you remove anything and everything that's even remotely good. Can you imagine? Can you imagine no more sunsets? No more sunrises? No more hugs from grandkids? Can you imagine no more fresh air to breathe or clean water to drink? Hell. Can you imagine no more good food or good times? No more sunshine to warm us or rain to sustain us? No more beauty to inspire us or music to lift us? No more love, no more joy, no more peace. Can you imagine? If so, that's hell. Because none of those things are there and more. Because God's not there. There's no common grace, there's no saving grace, there's no mercy, and there's no good. Only bad, only evil, only weeping and gnashing of teeth, only darkness, only emptiness, only absence. Including the absence of a second chance. Hell is eternal suffering apart from God's presence with no second chance. No second chance. As I mentioned last week, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. After death, which is final and irreversible, comes a final and irreversible decision by God as to where you will spend eternity. 
That's the implication of that verse. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. After that comes another final and irreversible decision by God as to where you will spend eternity. Irreversible because, once again, the great divide is fixed between heaven and hell. Irreversible because nothing unclean will ever enter his presence, Revelation 21. Irreversible because only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, it says, will come into heaven and that happens, being written in the Lamb's book of life. That happens before you die or it doesn't happen at all. There are no second chances. You may not even have another day in order to to make a decision now. May not. But I guarantee you, you will never have another second chance if you die before you make a decision now. You can only imagine how difficult these things are to hear because they're difficult to say. And it grieves me that some of you might still reject them. Oh, soften your heart, loved one. Even now as I speak, soften your heart. And let the sun shine in. The sun, S-O-N. Let him shine in. Save your soul and make you whole. There are no second chances, which means two things. First of all, there's no use praying for the dead very practical thing that we encounter almost at every funeral. There's no use praying for the dead. There's no use praying that God will have mercy on their soul because it's already been decided. If you fail to believe in the only Son of God, you are condemned right now, and it's finalized at your death. It means there's no use praying that God will have mercy on someone's soul. There's no use praying that they will rest in peace. There's no use praying that they will somehow get to heaven. It's a, another Catholic doctrine, predominantly, based mostly on Catholic tradition and a reference in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, if you want to look it up. But just like purgatory, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates we should do such a thing, that indicates that we should pray for the dead. The Apocrypha wasn't considered part of the Bible by the early church. In fact, it wasn't even considered a part of the Bible by the Catholic Church until the 1500s. Plus, the example of King David in 2 Samuel 12 refutes such a belief in praying for the dead. You remember King David's infant son who was failing and he, he prayed and prayed fervently for his infant son. But as soon as his son died, the Bible is so explicitly clear that he got up, he washed up, he worshiped, and he went home. In other words, he stopped praying for him when he died. All of which means praying for the dead is a moot point. God's judgment is final. 
and it's decided when we die. And last, no second chance means that what you decide now makes all the difference later. What you decide now makes all the difference later. Whether you believe in Jesus and repent of your sin today makes all the difference tomorrow. Whether you follow him and live for him now makes all the difference in eternity. No belief, no heaven. No repentance, no salvation. No devotion, no assurance. Listen, if that's you, if you're condemned and headed to hell and you well know it, or you're not sure, pray with me right now, will you? Pray with me to admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, repent of your sin, and receive him into your life. Admit, believe, repent, and receive. Pray that kind of prayer, not as fire insurance. Oh, hear me on this. Do not pray this as fire insurance. It won't get beyond your thought. Salvation is not intended to be fire insurance. That is something to just keep us out of hell, but continue to live however we want. Rather, pray a prayer like this from your heart. Committing to live for Jesus the rest of your life and assured of life with him the rest of eternity. I assure you that if you pray like that right now, heaven is where you will immediately go when you die. The furthest thing from hell. Let's bow our heads. If I've been speaking to you, what you decide now makes all the difference later. Don't wait. In the quietness of your heart, pray something like this. It's not your words, it's your heart, and God knows your heart. Just say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and need to be saved. I'm condemned and facing hell. Just admit it right now, just start there. God, I admit that I'm a sinner and need to be saved. I know that I'm condemned and facing hell. But I believe. I believe in Jesus to save me. If that's true of you right now, you tell him. God, I believe in Jesus to save me. I believe in him to give me life to the full and life forever. I believe. So God, I repent. I repent of my sin. Please forgive me and help me to turn from it. I'm sorry for living my way and I want to live for you. I repent, God. And I receive you now into my life as Savior and Lord. Fill me and lead me and shape me and mold me and use me for all eternity. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I admit, I believe, I repent, and I receive. As we continue in prayer,
If you just prayed that to the Lord, if you just prayed to be saved, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to call you out, but I would love to recognize you and rejoice with you and pray for you in just a second. And, and so while we just remain in a posture of prayer, if you just prayed, would you raise your hand and look at me? Just raise your hand and look at me and wait for me to respond. I want to recognize you. I want to encourage you. I want to pray for you. Is there anyone? simply saying, I just prayed for the first time. God bless you. Just prayed to give my life to Christ so that when I die, I go to heaven. Is there anyone else? bless this gentleman and for that matter anyone else Lord who just prayed but didn't raise their hand for whatever reason oh Lord would you bless them would you protect them would you grow them and would you assure them Lord oh that I pray God would you assure them of your love and assure them of their future we trust you for that and so much more, Lord. Oh, so much. Give them a hunger for your word and a hunger for Christian fellowship and church and worship and the preaching of your word and all the rest, oh Lord. But above all in this moment, assure them of your love and assure them of their heavenly future. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.